and welcome to Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medding, and this season I'll be sitting down with none other than Medical Director of Therapy Fertility, Dr. John Kennedy. Each week, we will be chatting all things fertility, trying to conceive, and much, much more. We hope that through this series, through honest conversations and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. This week in our first episode, John and I will chat a little bit about what infertility is and what options people have when trying to start their family in Ireland. Dr. John Kennedy. Yes. Very excited to be here recording our first podcast of yeah. Fertility Talks. Yeah, first foray into podcasting for me. I've not done anything like this before. But, wow. uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be gentle. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> I've done a lot of chatting, so hopefully it's, it's in the same wheelhouse. I've heard you chatting before, and I think we're going to have... Um, yeah, the problem, no is, the problem is stopping, <laughs> yeah, not starting. We'll have no shortage of things to talk about. No. Um, but yes, this is very exciting. And I wanted to kind of kick it off by mm. um, asking you a bit about yourself, because I know a lot of people listening will know who you are. But um, for those who don't... Well, you're kind to say a lot of people would know who I am. I don't think that's the case at all. I think, it is. I think, well, no, I think within the fertility yes. sphere, I suppose. But okay, fair. Outside of that, I think there's a huge lack of awareness. And yeah. I think that's something, well, we'll be talking about a fair mm-hmm. bit. Um, so who am I? Uh, John Kennedy is my name. I'm a doctor. I'm from Ireland. I'm from Dublin. My parents are from the West, but I was born and bred in Dublin. And I've qualified... 21 years now um, since I qualified and I did all my training in in Ireland in obstetrics and gynecology and I did over a decade at the uh, coalface in in obstetrics and in maternity units and in gynecology units and then it was about 2012 or 2013 that I moved into fertility. And had you always wanted to do that? Um, paradoxically, not really. Um, you do some fertility mm. when you're in the general health system in the HSE, but very little. The it's it, Ireland's a little bit unusual in that, f- for the most part, fertility services, formal fertility services, IVF and the like, are provided by solely by private organisations, and the public doesn't offer that. that and that's service. different in other countries, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, uh, most countries would have a mix of the two. Sure. So in in Ireland, unless you're working particularly in an IVF unit, you're never really going to be exposed to IVF. You'll be exposed to some pregnancies that have come from IVF, Mm -hmm. of course. You'll be exposed to some people who maybe have complications or what have you from IVF, but you won't really see see it from start to finish. So until you move into that field, you're a little bit separate from it. So I was I was doing other things, but I wasn't loving it. Medicine and obstetrics, particularly, and I don't really think it's changed massively. It's it's a tough gig mm. it's a lot a lot of long hours i mean as a, as a trainee you're kind of doing your 70 80 hour weeks and it's grueling you know and it's very grueling especially as you get a little bit older and you have a family and you want maybe a slightly better work-life balance although i think wherever you go there you are <laughs> um but uh, but i felt it was time for a change and an opportunity came up to break into fertility and i took it and i joined um sims in 2012 and worked with them making my kind of through the ranks through to 2020 and i think it was around 2000 circa 2015 2016 i became the medical director of sims ivf we were the 
responsible for three clinics around Ireland at that stage and were growing and bedding in and, and providing an awful lot of care. And I, and, I, and I loved it because it was from leaving the hospital structure, uh, it was a brand new skill set. It was doing really new and exciting things, but it was still treating patients. It was still getting that positive feedback. And most doctors, uh, whether or not they choose to admit it or not, are, are egocentric. And <laughs> we, we, we are. The, some of us are self-aware enough to know that we we don't thrive on the, the positive feedback we get from patients. We need it. We yeah, physically yeah, yeah. need it. And if yeah. you take that away from us, we, we don't have to do so well. So it was still great to be working with patients, working with couples, working with women, helping, helping people, uh, as I had been throughout my career. Uh, but also working in a completely different field and challenge myself and learning a set of managerial skills mm -hmm. and, and people management and process management, which you don't get the same level of exposure to in hospital medicine. So that was really, really exciting. And I took to it like a duck to water. It was it was great. And it makes really makes you wonder, you know, medicine is broad enough that you get to find your own place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and do you think you found your your sweet spot? Oh, very much. Yeah, so. very much. So I found myself challenged in ways that I hadn't been challenged through hospital medicine, mm. not to say that hospital medicine isn't challenging. It's extraordinarily challenging. Mm -hmm. It's just they're different. Yeah. Um, and I've, yeah, I've, I'd like to think I've thrived. Uh, I think I've, I've certainly enjoyed myself and I think I've enjoyed looking after people. And I think for the most part, people have, have, have been okay with, with me managing their care. And it's, it's been fantastic. And then of course, um, last year I, I thought maybe time for a change again. And, uh, there was a new there was a new organization starting up and I had some conversations and um, we're starting a new thing now, but it's still infertility, you know. Uh. Yeah. So what is your favorite part of uh, the process of caring for people who are going through fertility treatment? <sighs> this is going to sound a little bit negative, uh, but it's easy to do well when everything's going well. Mm -hmm. Everybody's delighted. Big boola bus more, big round of applause when, when you do an IVF cycle and somebody gets pregnant and you have a baby. And it's wonderful mm -hmm. seeing somebody come back with yep. the baby yep. or something or, or doing that scan and seeing the early pregnancy. It's incredibly rewarding and it's incredibly satisfying. But the more important and more satisfying part of the job is managing the situation when it goes the other way. Yeah. When you've had a bad early pregnancy scan, when yeah. you've had a negative IVF cycle. Because that's the challenge. And I remember uh, on, on my desk in the past, and again, I had a slew of cards, which, which patients very kindly gave me. And the vast majority of them, of course, are from people who... With their babies and... Yeah, babies yeah, yeah. and photos Pictures and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Very normal. But some of them, and the ones that meant the most to me, are the ones who didn't get success. Mm. And either went through a journey and then stopped or had a miscarriage or for whatever reason, it didn't work out for them yeah. in the way they wanted and they still felt that the process was done as well as it could have been. Yeah. And they got to the point where they hadn't felt like they'd been marginalized or maligned or taken advantage of, mm. where you'd worked collaboratively yeah. with them yeah. to get where, not where they wanted to go, but where they needed to be, perhaps. And I think that for me, and it sounds a bit cheesy, I know, but that's managing the negative is more rewarding than managing mm. the positive because it's harder. Yeah, it's 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 not as easy. It's just a tough thing to do, but it's a core part of what we do as healthcare providers. And you know what? I think that's probably why. And you are being humble when you say, you know, you hope that people have enjoyed working with you because I know, 
you know, as someone who has gone through extensive fertility treatment to have our two children, I hear the talk, I hear the chatter, <laughs> I hear what people say and, and, and people do love working with you. And that's probably why, because you mentioned the word collaboration and, you know, as someone going through the treatment, it often feels like it's happening to you and that you don't have a voice in this process. Well, you're happening at you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's really difficult because it's such an ins- uncertain time. You're spending so much money. You're putting so much time investment into it. And then to just the uncertainty of, is it actually going to work or not? And then if you have, you know, doctors with egos coming at you saying, this is your treatment plan and this is what you're doing. The you vessel know? effect. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, um, um, so I think that's, that's key. I think in, in, you know, patient centered care. I, I couldn't agree more, um, especially in something as personalized and emotionally fraught mm. as fertility treatment. Yeah. Is that people have choices. They can elect to come and see you. They can go and see other people. So there's got to be a click. There's got to be a connection. They have to trust you. Yeah. Um, but you have to be willing to listen and hear them. And also patients in, in medicine in general, there's higher and lower degrees of compliance. Mm. So you would have cohorts of medicine where people are very non-compliant with medications. For example, in pregnancy, 50% of people, this might be an old statistic, so mm-hmm. I, I won't stand over it too much, but around 50% of people didn't take the medications they were prescribed because yeah. they didn't feel like they were right or they didn't mm-hmm. want to and all the rest. So you always have that tension there between you trying to give something you think is in their best interest, they not want to take them because they're pregnant. Yep. And in other areas of medicine, you have people who really aren't aware of their own medical history, aren't aware of the risks of their behaviors Mm. or what they should do or what they shouldn't do. And they're just not on board. And it's a constant educational battle. Fertility is not like that. (laughs) No. Compliance is 100%. Yeah, because people are desperate. They just, you tell me to jump off this bridge, I'll do it. (laughs) But people aren't that compliant in any other area. If you give somebody a course of antibiotics to take, They'll take them till they start to feel a bit better. And, and then generally they'll, they'll be like, them. I'm grand now. And then in a genius way, they'll think, I'll keep a few antibiotics for the <laughs> next time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take like 20% of a course <laughs> of antibiotics. And that'll be fine. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. But in fertility, my God, they take everything when they're told and At how the they're told. exact time. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also they're really, really well informed. Mm. So they know a lot of what you're going to say before you say it. Mm. They're going to challenge you with things that you mightn't have said and say, mm. well, why aren't you talking about this? And you better be able to answer that. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is, it's perfectly okay not to know, but it's not okay to say, I don't know and I don't care. Yeah. If I don't know, I'm going to educate myself sure. because it's a massively quickly moving and dynamic field. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time you go, yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really good question. Here's why I haven't spoken to you about that particular thing. Yeah. And here's why I don't think in your particular circumstances, it's of benefit. Because in this field, if I start talking about an intervention, regardless of not whether or not I want the couple or the woman to go through that intervention, once I start talking about it, there's pressure on them to adopt it. Yeah. So if I start talking about various vaguely controversial add-ons or things like that, I have to be aware of what I'm saying, but also what they're going to hear. Yeah. They're going to hear, look, I'm going to have to go for this because he wouldn't have been talking about it if he didn't want me to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, Even yeah. if I'm saying actively, I don't want you to do this, but if I don't talk about it, you're going to be coming at me. So there's always going to yeah, be that yeah. touch. But that comes back to that word collaborative, collaborative mm-hmm. of, of, of working with the person and, yeah. and, and having trust in each other that you're all on the same same page and you all have the same goal in mind. 
Yeah, and that's something we will definitely be exploring as we go through the weeks with the, these podcasts is talking about these um, huge inverted commas add-ons and, um, you know, additional things that people try to do when they're on a fertility journey. And I understand, you know, we understand it's, you know, when you're when you're in this place, if you think anything can help, you're going to want to do it. Won't do any harm, might do, might do some good. Yeah. Very, very powerful justification. Unfortunately, it could be used to justify almost anything. Mm -hmm. There's no end point to that. Won't do any harm, might do some good. And won't do any harm tends to be a bit of a throwaway statement when, fine, it won't do any harm in the sense that you're not going to shorten your life or put your health at risk, but you're going to add maybe time, you're going to add a little bit of cost with a lot of things, and you're certainly going to add an emotional and psychological load. Yeah, like a burden. Of course. Feeling like you have to. But people don't think in those terms. Mm. They think I am willing to take on any emotional or psychological mm. load to get the result I mm -hmm. want. And there's no ground floor to that. And there's no upper limit to that. And I'll just keep that will keep expanding as much as it needs to. But of course, that's not the case. Yeah. You crack. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a bit about this new clinic. <laughs> yeah. So so what what we're doing um, and we're hoping to open very soon during the summer. Uh, is Therapy Fertility. Um, therapy is a brand which I'm sure many people are very, very familiar with. Uh, not me so much, but then I'm not, wasn't ever the target market, <laughs> I think. It was one of the things I said to uh, Philip McGlade when I was talking to him, I'm not, this is not therapy at all, uh, what I am. He's like, no, we'll fix that. It's a, it's a bold statement. Um, but they, Philip has particularly been looking at this area for a number of years. Mm -hmm. He's been saying, and he's right, to be quite honest, he's been saying that there's an opportunity in Ireland to democratize and change how we approach the delivery of fertility care. So I had a couple of chats with him and, 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 and the, other, the other members of the team that he had on board. And I talked about what I felt should be the direction for fertility service in Ireland. It very much allied with what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. I loved the vision um there's always a fear and a, when, when you're doing when you're talking to somebody who's entrepreneurial or talking to somebody who's really optimistic because i tend to be i tend to try to be contained not mm -hmm. pessimistic but you know cautious and don't over promise don't uh, yeah, always yep. always under promise and over deliver and when you're talking to somebody who's full of enthusiasm you emerge in these conversations very enthusiastic and you think wait a minute is any of that real is that possible yeah can exactly. we do this exactly but you look at what the therapy brand overall has done. Oh, it's in, phenomenal. It's, yeah. it's crazy. They, and I remember talking to our COO, Gronje, who I worked with in Sims in the past, who's, who's on board in, in this venture now. Uh, and she'd been talking to him and he said, look, a couple of years back, he said, this is what we're planning to do. We're planning to open 20 more stores in the next year. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did exactly that. Mm -hmm. So I feel and... And I've seen now over the last six months, they are absolutely going to deliver. We are absolutely going to deliver on this, for want of a better word, vision. So what we're hoping to do, we're starting a new IVF clinic. We're going to... In Dublin. In Dublin. Mm -hmm. It'll, it's based out in Carrick Mines. Carrick Mines, yeah. Yeah. Um, out where the, the whole shopping complex is out there. It's very accessible. I love the location. Um, it looks lovely. It's going to look I haven't been there gorgeous. yet, but I'm planning a trip soon. We need to get you out there. Yeah. It's absolutely gorgeous. It really it, is. It's the biggest one in Ireland. 
Is that right? Well, I mean, we aren't seeing patients yet, so yeah. so it's it difficult. Will be. Oh, oh uh, <laughs> like I don't I don't have any real doubts about mm-hmm. that, and that's not that is not to denigrate the competition or denigrate the other Absolutely, clinics. Yeah. The clinics I've worked in, which are really great great clinics, which deliver fantastic care. It's just I think that what we're going to be doing is so fundamentally different as it it's a game changer. And why is it a game changer? What is the vision? Well. Right now, we think in Ireland, half of all the people going through IVF or ICSI cycles are traveling abroad. Now, that hasn't been the case for the last year for pretty obvious reasons because of COVID. But prior to that, half of all the cycles. So if you have 100 women having IVF every year, and obviously it's it's thousands, but 50 of them are traveling. And why is that? Well, when you look at it, you'll be given a variety of reasons. You'll be given access to care, timelines, maybe specialist treatments Mm -hmm. or add-ons that aren't available in Ireland. That's all nonsense. It is for one reason and one reason only, and that reason is cost. Mm. Now, there are certain services which in the past weren't available in Ireland. One of them we're going to be talking about down Mm -hmm. the line. Reciprocal IVF for Mm -hmm. shared motherhood, surrogacy, things like that. The real kind of niche. But... Overall, as a proportion, those don't represent a huge percentage of overall so fertility So if we're looking at, at the, the, the main proportion are IVF, ICSI. The standard yeah. stuff, the standard IVF, ICSI and egg freezing. Yeah. Uh, then they're traveling because it's cheaper. And give us an idea of like a standard cycle you know, I, and I know it's it's hard it's hard to give a number because there are, as you say, it's, a lot it's, of add-ons. It's, it's and... hard. It's hard to compare. It's a lot of the time you're comparing apples and oranges. Roughly speaking, a cycle of IVF with fairly standard sort of packages mm-hmm. where you're looking to transfer the embryo on day five and you might have some embryos to freeze. Mm-hmm. You're looking at somewhere between five and six and a half thousand euro. And how much cheaper would that be? It's probably closer to four grand in Europe. Okay. So but, uh, you know, depend, Depending yeah. on where you go. And I mean, obviously there's there's a bit of a race to the bottom there. You can sure. find cheaper again, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're perhaps taking a hit, a hit on quality. So there's a huge number of people traveling for cost every year. So that tells you something. That tells you that there are women and couples in Ireland who want to access fertility care, but are really discommoding themselves quite substantially. They're discommoding themselves in a couple of ways. They're they're taking time off work to travel. They don't have the same level of support and care, both during and after the process, as they would if they were attending a clinic in Ireland. It's just not physically possible mm-hmm. to give somebody the same level of care when they're in yeah. a different country. And... Obviously, then you're paying for the ancillary costs in terms of lost time at work and travel and accommodation, accommodation. everything. Yeah. These are things you're yep. familiar with. So that population is there and they are, for whatever reason, unwilling or unable to access treatment in Ireland. So that's one huge problem. The second uh, big thing that we don't do properly in Ireland is fertility preservation. We've been talk- I've been talking about this for years, and this really comes back to what we were talking a little bit about earlier, about who knows me, you know? And I'm sure there are some people in the fertility space who know me, but nobody else knows me yeah. from a crow. And that's because people in Ireland are really totally unaware of their own fertility. And it's not something we're taught to prioritize. It's not something we're taught to check. It's not something we're, we're taught to look at in any way, shape, or form. And when you talk about fertility, what are you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about either a man or a woman's 
ability to conceive. Not necessarily their desire to conceive at any time, their but their, their ability to conceive and their awareness and the three or four headline items that would contribute to them being able to do that or perhaps running into problems. And what are those headline items? Well, <laughs> right, we're, into, we're into it now. You need three things to make a happy, healthy baby. You need a good egg, you need good sperm, and you need a place to put them. That's it. That's the cocktail. And whatever permutation that happens in, those are the three things you need. Exactly. And I'm being a little bit reductive with that, obviously. But it's a really good way to think about it because it means that any tests or any treatments you're doing really need to be focused in on those three zones. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, then maybe it's you're getting less bang for your buck. And what are the things that um, will put those three things at risk or diminish their uh, (laughs) ability? So if you're talking about sperm and mm-hmm. guys, sperm, the, the, the dad joke is sperm, like the creatures that produce them are both simple and sensitive. Um, <laughs> lots of things can affect sperm quality. Uh, diet, lifestyle, weight, alcohol, smoking, tight underwear, hot baths, saunas, jacuzzis, day with a Y in it. Anything can cause sperm to go up and down. Some people have sperm that's just bulletproof. Doesn't matter what they do, their sperm looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Some people have sperm that's really, really uh, sensitive and to lifestyle And does sperm changes. quality diminish with age the same way it does with eggs? Yes and no. It okay. diminishes. It certainly diminishes in quality with age, but perhaps not to the same degree. And okay. again, the other... Because is there a limited amount of sperm the way that there is with eggs? Not so much. There, there technically is, but in practical terms, no. You okay. will still produce millions of sperm when you're older. I think Charlie Chaplin, kids in his 80s. That's the, the, the line that gets drawn. We don't away. recommend that. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, not, not so much. There's ancillary issues around that. Um, so what affects egg quality then? And the big, big thing, the elephant in the room when you always get into this, is age. Mm. Sperm. You're generating constantly. They turn over. It takes, what, 70 to 90 days to make a sperm from start to finish. Eggs, you start off with your ovarian reserve with the quantity of eggs that you have in the ovaries. And as you get older, you use them up. So that's all that ovarian reserve means. It means how many you have. How many. It's quantity, not quality. The average age that people tend to run out of eggs at is around 44 years old. Mm -hmm. Some people older, some people younger. But quality also takes a huge hit as you get older. And... As a general rule of thumb, you tend to hold your egg quality up until your mid-30s, around 34-ish. From 34 to 40, it drops. From 40 onwards, it drops much more precipitously. Okay. Um, When you're talking about, you know, people maybe in their 20s, you know, forward planning. Yeah. And being fertility aware. So. What do you talk? What, what are you talking about? So I I would love to see this get get twinned with something like cervical screening. Mm. You know, when you hit a certain age, or you become sexually active, or or what have you, whatever markers you want to put in place, you should have, start having cervical screening because that's a great way to prevent you getting cervical cancer. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying fertility is like cancer. I'm really not. But I would love women in their twenties to have just a fleeting and passing awareness of their fertility potential. And there's an easy way of doing it. It's a blood test. It's called AMH. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's even touched uh, tangentially to fertility treatment. Will know what, will have heard of that. They might not know what it means, but they'll have heard of AMH. But what they'll heard will frequently be wrong. So let's break into AMH for a little bit. Anti-malarian hormone. It's a protein. It's produced by the ovaries. And it gives an idea of the ovarian reserve. That's all it does. 
It doesn't tell you about the quality of your eggs and nor does it tell you how likely you are to get pregnant any given month. Okay. You can have a, you can be young and have a very, very low ovarian reserve and still be ovulating every month. And you probably have pretty much the same chance of getting pregnant spontaneously as somebody else who has a, in inverted commas, normal AMH. So you need to be very aware of that. AMH tends to get misrepresented in in media, in yeah, TV yeah, shows. Yeah, and I certainly and, would have thought, oh, if, if you have a low AMH, you're screwed. Yeah, That's had, what I would have You've had thought. your fertility test and your fertility test is low and therefore your fertility is low. That's the logical progression. Yeah. Only it's not really like that. The AMH really tells me two things. The first thing it tells me is how you may respond in terms of dosages and cycle types mm-hmm. and processes and how many eggs we might get if we were to do something like IVF. So it helps me or other people working in this area to determine what kind of process to use and what kind of dosages. Of what okay, kind of so say we're talking about someone who's young who does not have kids on their radar at all. Why is it important for people to know well, their that's, AMH? That's the second thing. The second thing it tells me is how proactive you should be about your fertility Okay, options. so proactivity is really that's, the key and that, thing. And that's, I'm putting it at number two, but really it should be at number one. It's so important. And that allows you to make a decision. Here's the trick. If your AMH is not the value you want it to be, and don't ask a question if you don't want to know the answer, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily disastrous news. Mm -hmm. One, AMH can be an unreliable witness. It can go up and down at various points in the cycle. There's medications that can cause it to go up and down. If you're on the pill long term, you probably have a maybe around 20% reduction in your AMH value, which doesn't mean you've got 20% less eggs. It's just it's an artificial blunting or lowering of the of the number. And it's only one looksy. If you do have a low AMH, there's other tests we can do. There's ultrasounds of your ovaries we can do, which gives a better idea maybe of what your ovarian reserve is. But it allows you to make a decision. And that decision may be, look, I'm okay I roll the knowing, dice. Yeah. knowing yeah. and that uh, and I don't, don't want to do anything else. But, and I always, I, I never feel good about using these words because I, I, it feels like appropriation. But this is about empowering women to be in control of their own fertility destiny. And make some choices. Giving them the tools yeah. to do that effectively. Yeah. So I would love to see all women over the age of 25 get their AMH checked. Yeah. And I would like to see all women over the age of 25 then have a think. I'm not pushing it. I'm not recommending it. Have a think. When am I thinking about having a family? Should I look into fertility preservation? Should egg freezing be something something I do? And for the vast majority of people, that conversation may be, look, I've thought about it and I'm not going to do anything about it mm-hmm. now and I might revisit this issue in a couple of years. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I'd love them to be thoughtful about it rather than have this sneak up on you in, in, your, in your early to mid-30s and suddenly realize that a higher proportion of the population are going to run into problems. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we see. Yeah. We know that people aren't starting to have their families until they're... 32-ish on average in Ireland. So we know a higher proportion are going to run into problems because the numbers don't lie. And I would love if they had been aware of that at an earlier stage. And one thing that is a common and constant thread when you speak to women and families and couples who've gone through fertility treatment successfully and you ask them, what are you going to tell your kids? And the answer always comes bursting out of them. <laughs> oh man, they're going to be hyper aware of fertility. Yeah. They're not going to go through what we went through. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. they're going to, they're going to be absolutely aware. They're going to know. And I'd love to get not necessarily that degree of enthusiasm, but a bit of that out to the general population. But it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And normalize it a bit more, I think, oh, you know, because yeah. it's, it's not anything to be ashamed of. It's oh. just, it is what it is. And 
And to be fair, I think that's something that's happened over the last five to ten years in Ireland. I think that conversation about fertility treatment has become an awful lot more normalized. Mm. And I, I think people are less scared about talking about it. In the past, when I started working in fertility, there'd be loads of people, especially people working maybe more or living and working in more rural parts of mm. Ireland, who would be terrified of their local community finding out that they were going through fertility treatment because yeah. the child would be you know, not quite burnt at the stake, but, you know, would be, yeah, but would sure, be treated even differently. Like, you know, in such a Catholic country, <laughs> that's a whole other... Uh, I mean, kind of I, I, you know, and I, I think that's part, it's not all of it, but it's part of the problem, mm-hmm. is that is that certainly the sex education that I had in school was not good, you know? It was not good for just, you know, standard heterosexual, you know, oh, oh, God, <laughs> baby help you making. God you help know? you if you're gay. I mean, good luck. What, I, I always loved that Graham Norton line. What did you do when your eyes were gay? I just didn't go outside the house for 20 years until <laughs> I left. Um, it's, uh, so, I, I mean, that's improved and that's something that's changing. And that will be especially relevant in 10 or 15 years time, maybe. But right now we're still dealing with a cohort of people who were taught that you can get pregnant if he hangs his trousers on the end of the bed. You know, and yeah. that's not necessarily yeah. true. Yeah. And of course, of course, you need to be aware of contraception and unplanned pregnancies and all of these things. Of course, that's a core part of it. But that should be twinned with a conversation about fertility. That mm. should be folded into that. And it's not acceptable to pretend like that's not a real thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's a bugbear with me. So we talked about what fertility is. Mm-hmm. What is infertility? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so infertility, the World Health Organization defines infertility in a couple of different ways. And this, I've always tended to trot out these definitions a little bit. They say it's trying for six months without getting pregnant if you're over the age of 35 and trying for a year. Uh, to get pregnant, not getting a pregnancy if you're under 35, because obviously it's like Cinderella on the night of your 34th. It magically changes when you're 35. Um, When you say trying, you mean unprotected intercourse between a man and a woman. Exactly (laughs) correct. But that uncovers a multitude. That Mm -hmm. there is how long have you been trying for is, I was talking to the team about this last week, that's an octopus question. I've asked that question thousands of times. How long have you been trying for? And the majority of the time, the answer you get back is, you get a pause and go, well, we've been trying properly for, and generally it's a number between three and six months, Yeah, is what you get told. And it took me years to work out what properly meant. (laughs) I'd be interested to uh know. So, because properly to some people means we were having more regular unprotected intercourse. Some people properly means I was tracking my temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was tracking cervical mucus. Mm-hmm. Some people properly means I'm using ovulation prediction mm-hmm. kits. Some people properly means I'm taking a raft of extra supplements and I have him on a raft of supplements mm-hmm. as well. But the one common thread that properly means is that it has started to become difficult. That's what properly actually means. And it's, it's actually quite sad um there's 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 a sadness in there we've been trying properly for four months means this has been a chore for four months some couples stop having intercourse altogether it's definitely not enjoyable it's definitely not something that's happen happening organically between two people who want to have have intercourse it's become something that you have to do have to do by rote a means to an end exactly and that's that's the common thread of properly so how what i tend to say to people is 
how long have you been having have you been not using contraception and having having intercourse and generally then you see that number go from three to six months to a year to a year and a half to mm -hmm. two years you say oh actually you have but oh we haven't been trying properly but the irony is that you don't need to be trying properly necessarily just, to get are. pregnant yeah 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 um there's a misconception that when a man or woman have sex that the egg is released from the ovary and moves down the tube and the sperm swim up to meet the egg in some kind of fighter jet formation. All little Music in the background. Absolutely. <laughs> and they collide and they get everywhere. That's not what happens. Everything that happens in the tube, in the fallopian tube that connects the ovary to the, to the womb, happens on the side. And the side of the fallopian tube is covered in these little hairs called cilia, microcilia. Mm. And they act like a, like an escalator, mm. uh, like a conveyor belt, where they take an egg and they move it gently down the, the tube from one end of the tube to the uterus in a journey that takes five days, five or six days. The egg after it's released will probably only live for around six to 12 hours. Sperm, on the other hand, can live in the tubes for three to four days. And what happens is if the sperm is normal, if you're ovulating, if your tubes are open, and these are all really important things to mm -hmm. check, and you're having regular unprotected intercourse every three to four days, maybe even a little bit less, you build up these reservoirs of sperm dotted throughout the tubes. The egg is passed through these reservoirs, which give the sperm a chance to bind to the egg. The egg and sperm then turn into an embryo, and the embryo continues its journey down to the uterus. Okay. Once you work all of that out, you will realize that regular unprotected intercourse is as likely to get you pregnant as focused, timed, mm -hmm. ovulatory intercourse. Yeah. That's very reassuring to a lot of couples. It's incredibly reassuring to an awful lot of men who feel yeah. like they're under enormous pressure. It's somewhat reassuring to some women, and it's not reassuring to another cohort of women who want to have control. Yeah, who want to, who feel... want to know, we, we do it now, it's going to work. <laughs> and a huge proportion of people I've looked after have tended to live their lives on a curve where what they've gotten out of life is very commensurate to the effort that they made. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes they've achieved what they wanted, sometimes they haven't. But on those times when they haven't achieved what they wanted, they're able to rationalize by saying they didn't make enough of an effort. Yeah. Then along comes trying to get pregnant and it upends that whole thing on its head. And you don't have that degree of control. We know that spontaneous conception rates are 17 to 20% per month. So it can just take a few months. Mm. Maybe you haven't gotten pregnant in a year and a half just because of bad luck. Everything yeah. is working fine. It just somebody has to live on that end of the statistical curve sure and it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to happen maybe you've just been unlucky or certainly possibly maybe there's something we don't know mm -hmm. i think that's we'd all yeah, yeah. freely acknowledge that but the easiest thing to say to somebody and the hardest thing for them to do is of course oh, relax yeah being told by your friends and family to relax that you're really enjoying yourself and it's great and isn't it great trying to get pregnant that's torture maybe hearing it from a fertility professional should carry a little bit more weight and i'm not telling people to relax what i am telling them is the effort that they're putting in may not be adding to their statistical chance of success yeah. and that by putting that effort in they're putting themselves under more pressure yeah how you square that circle that's difficult mm -hmm. what do you do instead can you just pretend like you don't want to get pregnant or something, <laughs> trick yourself. You know, there's various different strategies. I'm not proposing that necessarily, but it's it's a useful lesson to bear in mind yeah. that 
just because you've been trying a few months doesn't mean you have to put yourself under any pressure easier said than done when you walk down the street you see nothing but bumps pregnant women all your friends they're falling yeah. pregnant and that's natural when it's with when it's what you want it's all you all can you think see. about it's tunnel yeah. vision yeah. and i have often heard of people you know as soon as they stop trying it happens you know and that's yeah. just luck sometimes isn't yeah. it as soon as i had my ivf cycle on my baby then i got pregnant pregnant spontaneously i had my other baby and i was told it could never happen are you sure you were told it could never happen you yeah. know it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so so there's, there's, there's things like that so that is traditional infertility what is um i've heard it called social infertility i've heard it called circumstantial infertility so obviously not everyone who wants to get pregnant is a man and a woman we also have single people wanting to get pregnant Absolutely. and be a single parent by choice. We have LGBTQ plus couples yep. wanting to get pregnant. So there's obviously um, usually an ingredient missing yeah. in these situations. I, I personally, I haven't heard called social infertility. I think that's a bit of a, I don't quite know how I feel about I that. Don't I don't quite like, like it. it. I was calling it social infertility for a while because obviously as you know, a queer person in a same sex marriage, we would be classed as infertile even though neither of us <laughs> do suffer I, from infertility I, wow i yeah it's interesting because in one sense you never want to use that term in a reproductive choice patient where you've no reason to believe there's any other problems yeah in and also i'm, I'm also very aware that terminology reproductive choice isn't ideal either there's yeah. no solid language here yeah, I yeah, think. yeah but you very much don't want to be marginalized out in terms of rights and access to treatment and things like that oh well you've chosen to be to be queer so yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to pay for your own treat what yeah you know that's yeah. that's mad so so you do want to acknowledge that these people are just as deserving of of, of treatment as as any other Anyone, couple yeah. who, who attend what you do want to do and perhaps slightly more useful terminology in this space is and this is the word i particularly like but it's probably a bit better here client client mm. and patient so i would have patients come into me and i know their patients because they're coming in with a problem they're coming in mm. we've been trying to get pregnant we need to have these tests done we need to look at treatment options we want to try to get pregnant we want to look at our timings or our how quickly it is we want to achieve our family but we suspect that there is a problem here which we want you to diagnose and manage perfect makes sense it's yeah. medicine but but somebody who's coming in who's in a lesbian relationship or who's coming in as a single woman they're not coming in with a problem they're coming in to access a service yeah and there's other ways they can access that service without going through healthcare professionals but they want to do it correctly and safely and responsibly but we have to treat them differently we can't funnel them down the same pathway because they don't have the same emotional or psychological needs or load their expectations are different as well mm -hmm. and how you manage all of that they are a different cohort they are a different clientele than than patients so you while they are they should be absolutely fall into the same melting pot in terms of access to treatment mm -hmm. and funding of that if, if we ever get into that uh i do think you need to manage them differently yeah however in saying that I do still tend to say, if I have a lesbian couple in front of me, I investigate them in much the same fashion as I would a heterosexual couple, obviously, minus the sperm analysis. Yeah. But because I, I still formally check the bloods, check the tubes, check the wounds. Because you may find that there are issues. And just because yeah. you haven't exposed those issues by not having heterosexual intercourse doesn't mean those issues aren't there. Yeah. And 
while that sounds a little bit negative, fertility treatment is difficult enough already yeah. without blinding yourself to and and you f you feel quite the fool if you don't do these <laughs> tests and then down the line you kind of go oh well maybe we should oh wow that was all that stuff we did over last year was never gonna work it yeah, turns yeah, out because yeah. your tubes are blocked yeah I'm like, okay I, yeah so i do think it's you should follow a similar physical pathway in mm. terms of testing and uh but i think how you approach it and how you manage that couple or that woman's expectations are are different yeah and so through this new clinic through therapy yep. fertility the that i i think the whole idea is to to streamline the process and 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 to to have really robust processes yep. so, right so so that's so what what are we doing what's different what's the secret sauce that we're bringing well the first we touched on earlier is affordability it's going to be an awful lot more affordable it's just going to be for want of a better term cheaper than ivf has been traditionally in, in ireland and there's various ways we've been able to deliver that there's also going to be payment plan options and things like that. So it's, it's going to be much more affordable and much more accessible yeah. uh, than than fertility treatment previously has been in this in this. Which country. is going to just be game changing of because course, that's, it, that's, it will it will force. That's going to blow it out the water straight away, yeah. straight away. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to simplify. What's happened is because of the nature of fertility treatment, the nature of all those things we spoke about earlier, about the patients being really well informed and the doctors being informed and add-ons and all that, the processes around it have become very, very complicated and very complex. And there's an awful lot of what I, what I would characterize as noise mm. involved in, the, in, in, in fertility treatment. And if you actually look at the evidence and you say, right, is this of is this product A, product B, product C? Is this thing that we're doing? Is this of benefit? Does this increase this woman or this couple's chance of having a baby? The answer is very frequently no, it doesn't. But you've added it in because you've been asked about it because it won't do any harm and it might do some good because it's a unique selling point that you have that the your the guy down the road doesn't have. So hey, look, come here. We've got this, you know, vitamin R and we're going to fill you full of it and it's going to give you a baby. You know or the, I'm being hyperbolic. Uh, for, there are things that people feel better about doing because maybe it maybe it helps. It's not going to hurt. A hundred percent. And 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 so you know, again, it comes back to that illusion of control, that feeling of being involved in the outcomes, or having having a, a greater degree of of control over the outcome. So we're trying to strip all of that away. We're being going to be really really honest. One thing. <laughs> One thing I've been accused of is being direct. I was thank, thank, thank you for your, I was like, thank you for your candor, and I was like, oh, that sounds like a compliment, but actually it's not. Um, but it was meant to send love, I hope. Uh, but this is too big, too important, too expensive, too hard to not be candid. Mm. Your your core job as somebody sitting in front of anybody who's who wants to have a baby is to manage their expectations appropriately, mm. to t give them as much as you can, the most honest appraisal of what you think their chances are. Because there's still an enormous cohort of people out there who believe, well, if I'm not having a baby, I'll just go and do IVF and then I'll have a baby. And it does not work like that at all. Yeah. At all. Some people have very high success rates and we really do think we'll get across the line. Some people substantially lower than than they think they're, they're going to be. And so your job is to make sure, just like with the AMH and, <laughs> and young women earlier, they're making the decision. They have what you believe are the best facts and assessments of the situation there. And then they make a decision about how they want to progress with their time and their effort. So that's what we're doing. Um, 
we're going to I'll, I'm, I'll obviously be heavily involved in terms of treatments and, and, and seeing patients and that but we're going to have we've got a really really excellent nursing team uh, we've we've drafted them from all over the country they've got huge levels of expertise and we're going to be leaning on them very heavily in terms of the delivery of care so when someone decides to first come to th therapy will they meet with the nursing team first the first thing they're going to do is they're going to meet with the nursing team they won't get charged for that consultation Okay. And then if they elect to prog pro progress with testing or treatments, then they obviously pay for those. And then they would see me afterwards and okay. we'll talk about it and we'll, we'll, we'll firm things up. We want to keep things simple. We'll still, obviously, you still have to have a number of different cycle options and processes, but we'll, we won't have the same level of complexity. Yeah. Whenever you speak to anybody who's been working in fertility clinics, and I know I have, this, this is our, I wish we could just stop for three or four months. I'd just love to just stop. Strip it all back. Strip it all back, <laughs> make it simpler, tidy it all up. But, but we can't because while I'm trying to do that, I've got this constant passage of people coming through in various, various ways. So we are in the incredibly advantageous position of being able to start from scratch. Start from scratch yeah. and build our own thing and, and build by consensus and get expertise from various different sources and use the years I've I've got the from and and, and the and the team who've all worked in different organizations, pull it all together, right? What was the thing you guys did really well that you knocked it out of the park on? Yeah. That you were so much better. Wow, and then you just you spitball, yeah. That's a really good idea. Mm. Let's do that. So strip it back, make it simpler, um, provide patients, use technology mm -hmm. uh to to smooth the process of course there has to be a human element it's fertility treatment you're not going to you're not going to want to or nor should you get away from that completely but you can use technology to make it easier to book appointments to get your results to look at your results to take mm -hmm. ownership over your own care i remember when i i mean and obviously we're going back 20 odd years when i started medicine if you asked for your notes if mm -hmm. you were a patient in a hospital and you asked for a copy of your notes you're like they're going to sue us, right? I mean, we should we shouldn't give them their notes at all. It should take months or years. And it was it was a real us versus them thing. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. I mean, your medical records are just that. They're your medical. They're not my record records. They're your medical records. I'm just minding them for you. So you should have access to them at the same time and in the same way that I have access to them. There shouldn't be a massive delay. There like shouldn't that, be some... That notion that yeah. I've done a blood test on you and you can't see the result of that until I've seen it and I'm ready to talk to you about it because... Because uh, I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor. <laughs> it's so important. And you can't possibly understand it and you can't contextualise it. And if you get the information, sure, your pretty little head will probably overheat. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just madness. And of course you should have instant access to these results. You do your own research on that. We'll meet in the middle. Maybe you'll come back with something that I think is more or less barmy but that's easily fixed yeah. you know and this notion that you will somehow aggravate yourself or cause yourself undue stress or anxiety i think it's a little patronizing yeah i would agree so uh through therapy the the kind of process will be completely different like people will uh, yeah i mean it's still you know IVF. There's still commonalities sure. in terms of taking injections and having egg collections and transfers but it's going to be we're getting, getting rid of the noise. Very much so. Very, yeah. very much so. And I want to make something that's scalable and accessible. And that um, everyone's getting the same treatment, right? Am I right? Is, this is this is it. And yeah. for the longest time, what I've wanted, and the, the, the secret little dream I've had is what I'm trying to do, and this, this perhaps sounds a little bit arrogant, 
I think I've minded and managed my patients well. Mm -hmm. I want to take that process and I want to make it not reliant on me. Yeah. That's what I want to do. That's a dream, isn't it? Yeah. Making something bigger I want to than make yourself. It scalable yeah. and I want to make it accessible. So I want those those things, those good things about the care that I have provided in the past to be available to everybody. Yeah, because there's only a finite amount of people that you can physically see exactly. in a year. Exactly, you know? correct. And I was I, I had saturation on that some time ago actually. So so that's very much what I want to do. You need to have a huge amount of resources and expertise behind you mm. to do that. I have that now. So it's all on us. It yeah. really is. And and it's 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 a wonderful feeling. So it will be accessible. It'll be simpler. It'll be more affordable. I'd like to think it'll be faster. Mm. Um, and I think one of the one of the accusations that could potentially happen, well, if it's accessible and affordable and all those things, you're saying it's cheap and nasty, right? No, it's not. And, and that's why I think I really want to get you out to the clinic because you're coming, you go, oh, it's not. It's not. We've got world-class embryologists. You've got a doctor with a very solid reputation mm -hmm. in there as well. So this isn't cheap. This isn't some low-cost model that, that's coming in. It's just a disruptor to an established service yeah because you know nothing has changed because Ex no one has tried to change yeah, nothing things. Has, you know, nobody's you had know. to yeah. yeah so this is so this is something different this is something yeah. new and different in you is very very exciting it so, is isn't it um so hoping to start seeing patients this summer oh very much so yes yes um i haven't seen patients for the last few months and it's the first time in a long time that i haven't been seeing patients i've missed it are you excited so excited. Um, it was funny because over the last couple of months, I've had occasional phone calls, people who had some fertility queries who I know personally or, or adjacent. And you just spend 20 minutes, half an hour talking to them. And you get off the phone and go, oh, I feel better than I felt in weeks. And again, it comes back to like, I need this. Yeah. <laughs> I've got an addiction. Well, it's what you're but, good at. And hey, listen, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, delighted to enjoy uh, doing it. So I cannot wait to get into the building to see patients, to show everybody what we're doing here. I think, without being hyperbolic, I think this is the most exciting thing to happen in fertility treatment in Ireland since it first started. I would agree. I would. Um, so over the coming weeks, we're going to talk about lots of different things. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's loads of things that I'd, I'd love to talk about. I'd love to talk about uh, the service that we'll be doing, which is essentially the fertility services. That's IVF, ICSI, IUI intrusion insemination, reciprocal IVF for shared motherhood or shared parenthood or this, who knows, you can maybe help me with that. Um, egg freezing. Um, donor sperm. Donor sperm. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd like to talk about some of the things we're not doing yeah. as well. And I think some of the things we're not doing are really useful and have a fantastic place. Mm. Um, I think there's a huge space for things like PGS, huge space for things like donor egg. I'm really happy to talk about those things and services that we're not. I'd also like to talk about services that we're not offering, which I don't think have the same <laughs> level of value. You know, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll wear my heart on, on my sleeve on that and, and, and talk about it. So, I mean, there's, look, I'll talk all day about this stuff. This is my bread and butter, um, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, and um, I think we'll kind of we'll we'll find our way, and you know people can people can ask us to talk about things that are oh, you know. I think you've got you've got a, a perhaps a wider 
social network than I do. So I, I like if people have questions. I mean, I think that'd be a yeah, great Yeah, they way. absolutely. And I think we've also set up an email address people can oh, email fantastic. in. Bring podcast up. at therapyfertility.com. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, we, we can get into that more. But I um, love that. It's exciting. Very exciting. And it's, this has been lovely, I have to say. Yeah. This has been this has been really uh, much easier than I thought it might be. <laughs> it's a good thing, right? Yes.